I'm Bonnie Harrison and welcome to The Detail's Long Read. It's one in-depth story read by us every weekend. This week, it's from the March issue of North and South, a story by Pete McKenzie called In Our Defence. He says joining our Army, Navy or Air Force was once an assured way to build a career, gain marketable qualifications and save for a mortgage while living in subsidised housing. But with unfit houses and poor pay, the ranks are thinning dangerously to the point where the most basic operations of a modern defence force are at risk. This is In Our Defence by Pete McKenzie. The streets wind in great loops around empty lots. The grass is marked by the faded outlines of old boundaries and trees have grown where houses once stood. To the south lies a graveyard and to the east a youth centre that has been temporarily closed for years. Once, this land housed thousands. The men and women who made Waioru military camp hum and the spouses and children who made it a home. Toward the end of the 20th century, 6,000 people lived in the Royal New Zealand Army camp's barracks or houses. They made Waioru, in the barren middle of the North Island, the heart of the New Zealand Defence Force. Today, however, fewer people want to live in its splendid isolation, Many of the army units that once used it moved to Palmerston North or Upper Hutt or Christchurch. By 2021, just 650 people were left. That migration wasn't limited to people. As Waioru shrank, trucks carried away many of the homes that once populated the military housing area, leaving streets that led nowhere and serve no one. Of the few shabby bungalows that remain, many are cold, drafty and in need of more than fresh paint. Waiuru's experience is symbolic of the Defence Force's wider decline. More than one in ten military personnel left the organisation in the past year. In an interview with North and South, Chief of New Zealand's Defence Force Air Marshal Kevin Short estimated that the attrition rate for the most skilled personnel was even greater, somewhere between 20 and 30 per cent it is almost certainly higher now. We can't sustain that loss, says Short. Then Defence Minister Penny Henare said last year, these are some of the worst rates the Defence Force has seen in its history. That has devastating consequences. The Royal New Zealand Navy has idled three of its nine ships for lack of people to crew them. A recent briefing to Henare explained that the Defence Force was experiencing significant fragility. When asked whether the Defence Force could maintain a peacekeeping operation in the South Pacific, the organisation's most important task after civil defence, in an era of deepening strategic competition, Short says it would struggle. That is despite the government since 2017 ploughing $4.5 billion of additional money into the organisation, the military's biggest funding boost in living memory. Practically all of it went towards purchasing new ships better planes and more reliable vehicles. Meanwhile, soldiers' salaries stagnated and defence housing wasted away. Now, the organisation's personnel are heading for the exits. Can it be saved? 
When Billy was five, he remembers sitting in front of the television and watching a muscle-bound action hero use a rifle as a haphazard flying fox to skid down a taut wire and kick a bad guy out of a watchtower. Ever since then, he says, I've wanted to join the army. New Zealand's army, however, has few open slots for action heroes. After a few years working on Civvy Street to get experience following high school, he enlisted in a technical role. Billy is a pseudonym. He spoke on condition of anonymity. Military life was short on action-packed fights and long on health and safety approvals, but he enjoyed his work regardless. Then COVID-19 struck. Suddenly, he says, you're away for half a year doing COVID things, and then when you get back, everything is in disarray. Like 6,200 other Defence Force personnel, Billy was assigned to Operation Protect, the Defence Force's border protection mission. His job was to guard one of the rapidly established managed isolation facilities at hotels in Auckland, Rotorua and Christchurch. The banality of checking IDs and delivering Uber Eats was numbing. It was so boring. You're wasting your life, he says. You signed up to play sport, go overseas, go on training exercises, have fun. All the mean things the military is about were taken away by COVID. The experience fed his growing disillusionment. After three years of service, Billy was working for $56,000 a year, and his hopes of an overseas deployment seemed less and less realistic. By the time the military stopped guarding border facilities, he had decided to leave. His choice sparked a strange mix of emotions. You have the relief of getting out and not constantly being in fear of forgetting your jungle hat, he says, but then also the sadness of never getting to go overseas. His experience is not unique. 77% of military personnel are paid between 5 and 16% less than people in equivalent civilian jobs. As a result, the number of people leaving has skyrocketed. By October last year, the Defence Force's military attrition rate was 15.8%, ranging from 12.1% for the Navy to 17.4% for the Army. If I got paid more, I'd probably stay, says Billy. But it's hard to justify sticking around for a few trips when you could double your wages as a civilian in Australia and go on as many trips as you want. Charlie has always loved the Army. She joined soon after leaving school and was quickly sent overseas. She still thrills at the memory, years after the fact. Eventually, she left to raise a family. Even then, she knew she would eventually come back. A few years ago, Charlie decided to do just that. Charlie is also a pseudonym. The army posted her to a role in her specialty, but in a town far from where her family had been living. They would have to move and the accommodation costs in their new location were far higher than what she had been paying. The only way to make it work was to live in defence housing, which is subsidised. By the time the paperwork was sorted, it was just before Christmas, she says. The pressure was on. With the help of a sympathetic housing administrator and a dose of luck, they snagged a multi-bedroom house just outside Charlie's new camp. At first, Charlie was stoked. It does the trick for me and my kids. It has everything that I need. It's a good, sturdy fuddy. But partway through 2022, she says, my rent went up about $200 a fortnight. That's out the gate, really. 
it's getting on par with normal rentals. As part of its tax obligations, the Defence Force must review rents every three years. She doesn't have much other choice. If she lived further away, she wouldn't be able to manage the competing demands of her children and her job. I don't have any other better option at the moment, she says. In recognition of its employees' sacrifices, the Defence Force provides a range of other benefits. Free dental care, a pension scheme, medical benefits. But the immediate challenge of paying rising rents on a limited salary makes them moot. Charlie has had to cut back on expenses elsewhere. Food, after-school activities, trips to visit family. She wasn't the only one to struggle. Some military families faced rent hikes of as much as 50% in 2021. The average rent for a three-bedroom home went from $190 per week to $272.50. Soon, even this option will be taken away from Charlie. Faced with enormous waiting lists, the Defence Force limits people to six years in its houses. In a few years, she will hit that cap. It's a bit of a scary thing for me, she says. The six-year cap is stupid, especially in this day and age with the cost of renting. She's unsure what she'll do when that happens. If she hadn't been able to access defence housing in the first place, or if she had known to expect the steep rent increase... I probably would have weighed up whether it was worth coming back, she says. As much as she loves it, she's questioning whether to stay. Everyone's on the bones of their butt, she says. Being in the army is getting to be a bit too much. Charlie's situation is better than many. Her house is basic, but warm, healthy and spacious. That's true of few other defence homes. According to a 2020 analysis by consulting firm KPMG, of the 554 surveyed houses owned by the Defence Force throughout the lower North Island, just seven were sufficiently warm and well-built to meet a core accommodation standard. Only 57 met the lowest legal standards for housing. It seems likely the report's conclusions are representative of the roughly 1,900 houses owned by the Defence Force and of the hundreds more barracks rooms in which many soldiers live. Kevin Short has characterised the state of defence housing as horrible. That has significant impacts for residents. In 2018, soldiers in Canterbury's Burnham military camp were told to limit their showers to under two minutes because of an E. coli scare within the water infrastructure, in 2021, the Defence Force informed the Defence Minister that up to 20% of defence houses might be built on soil contaminated with lead, arsenic or asbestos. The Defence Force has sold off hundreds of its buildings over recent decades without replacing them. As a result, for most personnel, the only option is an increasingly unaffordable commercial market. A lot of people feel that's one of the perks of being in defence, having cheaper housing, being able to save for a mortgage, says Charlie. Those dreams are going now. The brutal challenges the Defence Force now faces are the product of complex trade-offs forced upon recent governments and senior officials after decades of funding difficulties. My interview with Air Marshal Short, the New Zealand Defence Force's chief, is in a Spartan conference room at the Defence Force's newly constructed headquarters in Wellington. 
Short blames the Defence Force's challenges on inconsistent support from the government and says successive governments have had too short a time frame on defence issues, focusing on wins they can score within three-year terms. We need governments, no matter which party comes into power, to look at the Defence Force and say, we've got to look 10, 20, 30 years ahead and have consistent funding, says Short. According to the Defence Force's calculations, New Zealand's defence spending as a percentage of GDP swings between 0.8 and 1.1%, says Short. We can't afford to do that, because that's an over 20% swing in funding that can happen over a reduced number of years, maybe just a couple of years. Instead, he urged the government to set it at a particular point and sustain it. Choose a percentage of GDP, 1%, 1.5%, even 2%. The latter is the amount called for by NATO, the transatlantic security alliance with which we often partner, and consistently fund the defence force at that level. The alternative, he says, is boom and bust cycles that hobble our armed forces. Politically, that inconsistency is understandable. Few civilians care about defence force funding, and service people can't exert pressure the way others might. When teachers want better pay, they go on strike and put children out waving placards and pulling heartstrings. Nurses, doctors, they all do the same, says former Defence Minister Ron Mark, himself a former army captain. Soldiers can't go on strike. And yet, for all that inconsistency... Those soldiers have just been blessed with a boom. The $4.5 billion in additional funding the Defence Force has received from this government is an investment of stunning scale. Almost all of it went towards hardware, not housing or salaries. $2.3 billion on four new submarine hunter aircraft, $1.5 billion on five new transport planes, $100 million on 43 new armoured vehicles and more. This is understandable. For a long time, the Defence Force's equipment has been falling apart. The Royal New Zealand Air Force's planes were so run down that there was a fair chance on any given international trip that the Prime Minister would have to hitch a ride with a friendly power. This happened most recently in October, when Jacinda Ardern had to fly back from Antarctica on an Italian military flight because the New Zealand plane that was meant to transport her had a broken propeller. In 2019, she flew home from Melbourne on a commercial flight when her Air Force transport broke down. Aircraft were going to fall out of the sky, mate, says Mark of the State of the Defence Force at the time. Both national and Labour-led governments had kicked the can down the road time and time again, he says. We were in trouble and something needed to be done. But as unfathomable sums of money were poured into hardware investments the rest of the Defence Force continued to wither. In a 2022 survey of Defence Force personnel, a third said they were actively looking at leaving. Only 23% felt they were paid fairly, a drop from 45% the year before. Similarly, only 23% said the housing or accommodation support they received was fair, a drop from 41%. The focus on hardware is partly a product of politics. In 2018, according to a Cabinet Minute, Bill English's national-led government directed the Defence Force to, quote, 
Prioritise activities supporting the P-8A Poseidon Maritime Patrol aircraft and complementary capability infrastructure development, overfixing other parts of the defence estate, like housing. That continued under the Labour New Zealand First coalition. Mark, a New Zealand First MP, was Minister of Defence from 2017 to 2020 and an enthusiastic advocate of equipment purchases. In terms of capability and equipment, I was able to secure the biggest increase in 40, 50, 60 years. We're seeing capabilities come online we've never had before, he says. But he claimed he was overruled when it came to pay increases. Of course, the focus on hardware was not solely a political decision. Especially in foreign affairs and defence, politicians rely heavily on advice from the civil service. The prioritisation of hardware was also partly the product of advice from the Ministry of Defence and Defence Force Senior Brass. Now we are entering the bust. Under pressure from the Defence Force, the government recently contributed an additional $90 million over four years to help address salary pressures among military personnel. Short says he is pushing the government for another boost of $60 million to give at least a 6% to 8% pay increase, not across the board, but where we need to address pay disparity, he says. But the government is under enormous financial stress. Understandably, after its recent funding spike, defence has slipped down the agenda. The government has already deferred several major defence investments, such as a new Antarctic patrol ship. When asked in a TVNZ Q&A interview whether he thought the Defence Force paid military personnel enough, Defence Minister Henare said, I don't think we do, but we've made a contribution in this year's budget towards remuneration. Henare said he was working with other ministers to see how we might be able to continue to help. On the 31st of January, Henare was replaced in the defence portfolio by Andrew Little in a cabinet reshuffle. In 2019, in the government plan that spelled out how its enormous investment would be spent, Mark wrote that the decisions contained within it were likely to shape the defence force for the next 30 years or more. He was right. Now the Defence Force is struggling with the aftermath. These difficulties come at exactly the wrong time. The Pacific is gripped by the fiercest geostrategic competition in the region since the end of the Cold War, and climate change is drastically worsening the natural disasters the Defence Force is often called upon to respond to. Midway through 2022, China signed a sweeping security pact with the Solomon Islands that would allow it to send military personnel to the island nation and potentially base naval vessels there. Soon after, China proposed a similarly wide-ranging trade and security pact with almost a dozen other Pacific nations. It was an ambitious effort to win influence in the region that sent Australia, America and New Zealand scrambling. On anything related to security arrangements, we are very strongly of the view that we have within the Pacific the means and ability to respond to any security challenges that exist, and New Zealand is willing to do that, said Ardern after news of the proposed Pacific deal broke. Eventually, Pacific nations rejected the deal, in part in reliance on such promises of Australian and New Zealand support. Manase Songavare, the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, said he would only call on China if there was a gap in the assistance Australia, and by extension New Zealand, could provide. 
but military attrition has jeopardised our promises. We lack sailors to sail our new ships, air crews to fly our modern planes, and soldiers to crew our sleek vehicles. Late last year, the Defence Force recalled one of its patrol ships from the Pacific a month early and docked it indefinitely due to dropping crew numbers. It had already done the same with the other patrol ship that often monitors the Pacific. When asked whether the Defence Force could sustain a hundred-strong peacekeeping operation of the sort it conducted in the Solomon Islands in the early 2000s, Short says the Defence Force would struggle to send more than a company, which is roughly 90 soldiers. Our Association of Southeast Asian Nations, South Pacific, Five Eyes Partners, are watching like hawks, says Ron Mark. Are we capable of patrolling the Southern Ocean? Probably not. Can we deploy a battle group? Probably not. It's a grim situation, he says. I would say we're in trouble with any major deployment. There's a concern at the moment, with our region being more contested, that if you want security so that you can keep doing what you want, that doesn't come free. There is a cost to that, says Air Marshal Short. He says communicating that has been difficult. It's really hard to do when New Zealand's been at peace for so long, he says. I don't know how you get to that threshold through a government. They have to understand that. They have to engage internationally. They have to see that pressure. That was In Our Defence, written by Pete McKenzie and published in the March issue of North and South. The detailed long read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with a new long read. Ka kite anō.